The act of singing this particular hymn does not allow you to not be happy. I had a professor when I was doing my Ph.D., a Lutheran theologian by the name of Timothy Lowell. And he died unexpectedly in his early 60s while I was a student. And we loved him very much. And when we were planning his funeral, we found out that he had left instructions that his entire funeral mass would be Christmas carols. And we were all like, what? And he left in the instructions that he said, because you cannot be sad when you sing Christmas carols. And I want this moment to be one of extraordinary joy because I'm going home. I remember it was one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had because there was people there of every faith and we were all singing Christmas carols together. And I think that's the kind of work that Christmas music does for us. It connects us to our bodies, it connects us to the divine, and then it connects us to memory. I have a very distinct memory of hearing that song at home with my family. There's something unifying in that message, like joy to the whole world, all of us. For 31 years, that has been the last song played. It's the recessional hymn from Mass, so I always think of it as Christmas is coming and we're leaving Mass. Every time Joy to the World came on, he would stop and sing and belt it out like no one was watching him or hearing him. And that kind of meant Christmas was here. This is like the Christmas song. Welcome to Hark, a podcast about the meaning and the making of our favorite Christmas carols. I'm your host, Maggie Van Dorn. And over the four weeks of Advent, we've been unwrapping one song at a time. We look at the musical development of these jingles, along with the religious and cultural messages baked into their lyrics. On this final episode of the season, we're talking about joy to the world. Its Christmas popularity is uncontested, and yet there's nothing in it about the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. As a psalm, it reflects the joy that came from Jewish deliverance from exile. As a carol, it anticipates the second coming of Christ. But of course, like any work of art, its meaning evolves with us. First off the bat, we get hit with this really powerful chord right at the beginning. It's this big, exciting entrance. We have all of the voices coming in nice and strong. My name is Colin Britt. I'm a choir director and educator based in New Jersey, and I also direct a church choir in Jersey City, where we are enjoying many Sundays of Advent right now. By now, Colin should be a familiar voice in your ear. He's joined us a number of times on Hark, and it only seemed fitting to have him back for the final episode of the season. When I asked Colin about the history of Joy to the World, he didn't begin with a composer or a hymn writer. He brings us back to scripture. So 
Joy to the World is an adaptation of Psalm 98, and it's very much just expressing joy and gratitude that Jesus has been born. Well, the carol is proclaiming Jesus' birth. But Psalm 98, that's from the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures, where Jesus hasn't quite entered the picture yet. So he's taking this Old Testament text and refitting it for a Christmas context. And who exactly is retrofitting Christ into the Psalms? Joy to the World first comes from Isaac Watts, who's a very well-known hymn writer. So well-known, Watts has been called the father of English hymnody, and he has well over 600 hymns to his name. And while he was English, he did not belong to the Church of England, which in that day was a treasonous offense. Isaac took after his father, who was jailed three times for his religious nonconformity. And legend has it that when baby Isaac was born, his mother nursed him on a stone outside the Southampton prison that held his father. As Isaac Watts grows up, we can see that he's a precocious child. He learns Latin at four, and he excels in school. But again, can't go to the esteemed Anglican colleges of Oxford or Cambridge because of his theological resistance to the Church of England. Nonetheless, Watts becomes an esteemed hymn writer, poet, and preacher. He even writes a book of songs for children. And for that time, when only half survived childhood, religious education was urgent. Parents taught their children to sing for their salvation. And Watts supplied the songs. Which brings us back to one of his greatest, Joy to the World. He wrote this particular carol in 1719, and it was sung to differing hymn tunes, but the version that we know most commonly is from an 1848 arrangement by the American composer Lowell Mason, who also wrote melodies for, interestingly, the song Nearer My God to Thee. And the tune to Mary Had a Little Lamb. But this melody is said to be from Handel. That's right. We're talking about George Friedrich Handel, a German-born son of a barber who became a very famous composer during the Baroque era. Handel's talent takes him across Italy, where he composes many operas. But he ultimately becomes a British citizen after winning the admiration of King George I and Queen Anne, for whom he even composes a birthday song. But that's only the start of it. His most famous vocal piece is by far Messiah, and the melody for Joy to the World is pretty much lifted verbatim from one of the choruses in Messiah. And it's most commonly known for the Christmas portion, which is the first, I would say, third 
of the piece. And of course, the Hallelujah Chorus, which actually comes at the end of the second part. But there's a chorus called Lift Up Your Heads, O Ye Gates, that occurs about midway through the second large part of the piece. And the melody and the harmony is very recognizable. And so that opening figure, lift up your heads, is the exact same melody and rhythm as the beginning of Joy to the World. So there's no question Lowell Mason is acknowledging this influence, is arranging it and adapting it to fit with this text by Isaac Watts. So what is noteworthy about Joy to the World? Pun fully intended. That was a great pun. I like that. (laughs) Um, So Joy to the World has some really great examples of what's called text painting, which is where a composer or arranger is setting a melody in a way that kind of mirrors what's happening in the text. Text painting is a new term for me this season. We heard Christopher Walker explain it in our episode In the Bleak Midwinter and Good King Wenceslas. And basically, it's where the notes accentuate the text and the music amplifies the message. So for this example, Joy to the World, the Lord is Come, it's literally a descending scale. And what is the Christmas story about but God coming from heaven to earth? So this notion of coming down from the heavens to earth is depicted in how this melody is set. Joy to the world, the Lord is come down to be with us. And then let earth receive her king climbs back up again. Which both gives it a nice symmetrical quality to the phrase. We start and end at the top of the scale, work our way down and come back again. But it's also putting the word king at the top of the phrase, which fits thematically with the notion of Jesus as as king. Exalted. Exalted, exactly. And of course, also, there's a regal quality to this hymn, which fits with what you might find in coronation anthems or in music that was written for the monarchy, lifting up a king or a queen. What's also really fun about this hymn for me, when we get to the part about heaven and nature singing, or in another verse where all of these objects are repeating the sounding joy, the the melody literally repeats from part to part. Mm. And so the sopranos and altos have, the tenors and basses echo them. And so you get this sense of the multitudes coming together to create this joyful sound. So you have... And it all converges on the final line of the stanza. And so you get this sense of everyone singing over here, over there. There's call and response. There's all these different forces at play that are making this text come to life. And I will say, unlike some of the other carols that we've discussed, which are more complex, Joy to the World does feel manageable. It feels like something that I could sing. And I wonder if that's by design. I'm sure it is. I think that the fact that the melody is contained within an octave, it fits between everything that the melody has to say is within that scope. So it's a very manageable range for most singers. There's a lot of repetition that takes place. It breeds familiarity. It helps 
singers learn it more quickly. And so this opening figure repeats in fragments And it's all stepwise motion. It's all moving from one note to the next note consecutively. There's no skips or jumps, which make that a lot easier to sing. And then the other part, the second half of the tune, is a sequence. It's a repeated melodic line that's just transposed slightly. That gets transposed to... It's the same material, just moved down a step. And then finally, the ending is almost verbatim a repetition of that scale again. So it's very logical and intuitive. What I love about this song is just how beautifully the text and the music work together to help us feel and express joy. Psalm 98 commands us to join in the choir of heaven and nature. And the music, by its very design, compels us to sing. And for anyone who has sung Joy to the World in a church service, you know you can't sing it quietly. So usually you hear Joy to the World right at the end of the Christmas services, and it's often very grandiose. It's, it's usually accompanied with instruments. If you're in a church that has an organ, the organ will be playing with all the stops pulled out. If it's a church that has other instruments playing, you can expect there to be brass, winds playing, timpani. It's very much a regal, stately kind of hymn. And this makes sense for a song that triumphantly begins, Let Earth Receive Her King. It also aligns with the kind of music that Handel wrote for the British monarchy. whether it was a celebration or a consecration or a coronation, it would have been in this style. It's a very regal and triumphant sounding hymn that is usually accompanied with regal and triumphant instruments. So we as Christians are celebrating triumphantly the coming of Christ, but Christ himself came in a lowly manger and didn't require all the pomp and circumstance that the monarch's handle would have been composing for might have wanted. So does joy to the world make sense for the birth of Christ? I think that's a really good question. I think that joy to the world, when we sing it, is definitely celebrating the story of Christmas and how Christians believe that the coming of Christ was redemption for the world. But it is true that none of what we experience with Christmas, none of the trumpet fanfares and the orchestras playing and you know these big majestic pipe organs filling giant cathedrals, none of that was around when Jesus was actually born. And I think that kind of goes again with our notion of, of Advent as being this sense of waiting and expecting something tremendous to happen, and it happens in the most quiet, intimate, and humble of situations. I think there's also something to be said about trying to mirror exactly what happened and then trying to capture the joy in response to whatever happened. 
Like, I think we can have many different moods surrounding the birth of Christ. Some of them are going to be joyful, exultant, brassy and loud, and some are going to be quiet, humble, eerie, suspenseful. And I somehow think that Christmas can contain that, all of that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that this carol is, as we've discussed, a setting of a psalm that is expressing gratitude. It's not actually narrating the Christmas story. It's expressing our joy because of the Christmas story. After the break, we'll get to the bottom of what this carol is really about. Stay with us. Welcome back. Before the break, we heard about the history of how Psalm 98 became a caroling classic through Isaac Watts's quill and Handel's Messiah. And we established that while joy to the world is synonymous with Christmas, it's not actually describing the Christmas nativity story at all. So to figure out what this song is really about, I called up a theologian. So my name is Cecilia Gonzalez Andrew, and I am professor of theology at Loyola Marymount University overlooking the beautiful Pacific Ocean, which I can see from my window. And I am also the author of the book Bridge to Wonder, Art as a Gospel of Beauty, which has just been issued on paperback. Cecilia teaches across several disciplines of theology, systematics, Latina-Latino theology, eco-theology, and theological aesthetics. Which, of course, comes very handy when you're thinking about music. And so we get to really just experience how Christian communities have imagined keeping alive Christ's story through creative means, which, of course, Christmas carols do fantastically. Theological aesthetics is a great lens for thinking about this carol. But if you're anything like me and think it will help you pin down the exact meaning of this song, think again. Let's just start from the beginning. What is Joy to the World about? Well, one of the first things that I say as a theologian who works in aesthetics is that art pieces, art experiences are about experience and they're not so much about one thing because they do so much, right? So I always try and get people to stop thinking that there's one message in anything, but rather to just be open to the just entire experience that they have with a creative piece. It's almost as though I asked the wrong question then. Maybe it's not like, what is this about? But uh, what experiences does this song convey? Absolutely, right? Because one of the things about, theologically speaking, about creative things is is that they are doing heavy-duty work. A hymn like Joy to the World is actually lifting us up into joy through our bodies. So, joy to the world, right? You can't do that unless you are just really ready to just explode with sound and with gratitude. In other words, if you want to simply analyze the text, sure, 
you can confidently deduce this carol's meaning. But if you want to understand Joy to the World as a creative force that has been reimagined by all the hands and voices it's traveled through, then you need to place yourself in the song and see what meaning emerges when you sing it. Well, the first thing is the actual first line, right? Joy to the world. And for me, as a theologian, this points to something that we need to get rid of, and that is the idea that the world and the spirit are separate things. Hmm. You know, we have inherited some very bad habits of separating soul and body, earth and heaven, and this hymn tells us none of these things are separate. It's all one connected reality. Joy to the World is telling us our world is beautiful and our world needs to have joy proclaimed in it. And I think that most of our experiences of Christmas are about abundance. I had an experience one Christmas. My niece was about four years old and the whole family was together and we were all gathered in this one room and they were visiting. And so she was so excited because her grandparents were there and her cousins were there and her tias and tios, everybody was there. And so she got a piece of paper and and her crayons and she sat on the coffee table. And when I looked over, she was just drawing these beautiful circles of all different colors and laughing and drawing more circles of all different colors. And I said, that's God creating. That's the best image I have, this extraordinary abundance and exuberance of joy who just brings it all forward for us. And we get that in Genesis, right? I mean, God keeps saying what God sees is good, what God sees is very good. You have just described a very biblical impulse, and there is scripture at the heart of joy to the world, right? It comes from the second half of Psalm 98. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Psalm 98. So I'm wondering if we could read Psalm 98 together. Would you mind reading it for us? I would love to. It's one of my favorites. So, a psalm. Sing a new song to the Lord, for God has done marvelous deeds. God's right hand and holy arm have won the victory. The Lord has made God's victory known, has revealed God's triumph in the sight of the nations. God has remembered God's mercy and faithfulness toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. Shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth. Break into song, sing praise to the Lord with the lyre, a melodious song with trumpets, and the sound of the horn. Shout with joy to the King, the Lord. Let the sea and what fills it 
sound. The world and those who dwell there let the rivers clap their hands. The mountains shout with them for joy. Before the Lord who comes, who comes to govern the earth, to govern the world with justice and the peoples with fairness. Thank you. Now, straight off the bat, there is a lot of nature happening in Psalm 98, along with Joy to the World. I mean, we get mention of the rivers clapping, of the mountains singing for joy, and then in the song, Joy to the World, we hear about fields, floods, rocks, hills, plains, you know, all repeating the sound of joy. As someone who studies and thinks about ecotheology, what do you hear in this song? I think this is one of the best examples of how entwined the natural world is with the biblical sense of God's presence. So, you know, we sometimes say that God reveals God's self in three ways. One, of course, being the biblical text and the biblical revelation. The other one, of course, being Christ incarnate. But the third one, and one that I think is pointed to so often throughout the entire biblical witness, is nature. The book of nature, Well, and I think so many people, whether or not you have a relationship to a religious tradition, do find a sense of the divine of God in nature. It is just this incredible entry point that hopefully we all have access to. And in that way, I think that nature becomes a kind of evangelist for the divine. Well, there's a playwright who many, many years ago, a couple centuries ago, wrote a perfect line, I think, which says, beauty is the one thing that will never make you doubt of God. And I think that people feel that in their bones, right? My students who may not be religious at all, when I ask them, describe experiences of beauty, and I said, tell me where you are, but then tell me how it makes you feel. And they will realize that they're talking about a profoundly spiritual experience. And of course, you know, here I can tell them, just go over to the bluff at sunset and then tell us about it tomorrow. (laughs) It really makes them realize that they've sometimes, and they will use this language, they've been kind of sleepwalking through their lives. And it will make them stop and say, Oh my, I really need to pay attention to all this. Wild fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains. So, Joy to the World says, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. I mean, we hear the repeat of that phrase, and we are urged to participate in the celebration of creation. Why do you think it's important? perhaps as a spiritual practice, to repeat, to say back? Well, I mean, it's one of our more ancient practices. 
in Christianity, but in many religious traditions, is the call and response. Mm. Again, this is also all throughout, especially in the Hebrew Scriptures. We're not saved alone. We're saved together. And so I think that the call and response is a reminder, right? My voice, your voice. Your voice, my voice. We echo each other. And of course, when we sing, right, we want to repeat phrases because, as my music teacher grandmother would say, your body learns it, and then your body can do it all on its own. It becomes second nature. Yes, exactly. One of my very good friends, Tony Alonso, who's a fantastic composer and theologian, when he would come and guest teach for my class, he would say, all of you are singers. It's just somebody at some point told you, maybe you don't sound so great, and you believe them. <laughs> well, <laughs> I still believe them. <laughs> Although that hasn't stopped me from caroling. Well, exactly. We can all make a joyful noise. And I think he's right in both, you know, our creativity. At some point, people start judging it, and we become shy. But we need to just say, you know what? When I was four years old, I wasn't going around saying, what do people think about what I just did? Mm. I just did it. And so I would just love for all of us as we approach Christmas to just say, yeah, I'm going to sing. I may not be the greatest, but I'm just going to sing because it's good for me and my body and it's good for the planet. It's a good thing. Joy to Well, this song has a lot of eco-themes, and Pope Francis has written Laudato Si, an encyclical that is really very grounded in eco-theology and care for our common home. And one of the themes that Pope Francis picks up on is care for the poor, or understanding how care for creation is intimately tied to our care for the poor. Yeah, that is one of the things that I think my students are suddenly aware of that they hadn't been before. They understand how much they love going to the ocean. But then we start to talk about everyone who doesn't get to go to the ocean, about everyone whose oceans are horribly polluted. But then now, right, when we think about the island nations that are disappearing because of the climate crisis and the rising seas, when we think about the biodiversity that is threatened, when we think about the bleaching of the corals, right? all of that has enormous effects on the poor of the world. They are bearing the brunt of our climate crisis and they are not the perpetrators of it. I have a, a very little uh, patience, you know, for when we want to only talk about an endangered species, but we don't want to talk about the endangered poor. And so we need to bring these two things together.
Cecilia, you told me that to help your students come into contact with the grandeur of God and creation, you send them on assignment to the bluffs overlooking the ocean or to go and immerse themselves in nature. How do you help students get in contact with the poor? So they have a field research project where they actually have to go and work with an organization that is bringing together care of the planet, care of the poor. So I have this wonderful student who went to do work in one of our inner city areas. And when she got there with this organization, they were planting trees. And she was like, they had no trees. And I got to actually put my hands into the soil and and put these trees into the ground and imagine them growing into the future. And then what she told me this past week was her whole family is going to do it with her now. And I think that's beautiful because she also was very clear that she was recovering a relationship to her own Black community that she hadn't been aware of before. And that was also very beautiful. And so we end our season on a note of joy. And I suspect that if you play this carol too soon, you might get a kind of manufactured happiness that hasn't had the time to mature into the fullness of joy. Because even though joy is known for bursting onto the scene, its secret is that it's been long germinating beside other complicated feelings of bleakness, of searching, of longing. Of wondering whether we are or have enough. Maybe joy is even made possible because we've first allowed ourselves to feel the absence of it. But what if, come Christmas morning, we still don't feel ready to burst into song? I think it's okay to turn to those around us for a little call and response, to allow ourselves to be led, to echo a promise we cannot yet see for ourselves. I also think that when times feel especially bleak, we have to heed the call of this song to let heaven and nature sing. Or, as the writer Cheryl Strayed says, to put yourself in the way of beauty. We will wrap this episode with Joy to the World, arranged by Christopher Walker and published by OCP.
Hark is a production of America Media. And at the end of our second season, we have a big and important question for you, our listeners. Which Christmas carols would you like for us to explore next year? Let your voice be heard and complete the short survey we've provided in the show notes. And if you want to be sure that you don't miss Hark when it drops again next year, the best way to stay tuned is to stay subscribed on your favorite podcast app. Now, onto the credits. Please join me in extending a warm word of thanks to the talented individuals who have made this show possible. Ricardo Da Silva has worked miracles as a producer co-creating this series with me. Our sound engineers, Jim Villado and Frank Tucson, have made Hark into an actual work of art. They have spent countless hours arranging, editing, repairing, and yes, even composing music. This episode was engineered by Jim Villado, who also contributed original music. And our theme music was composed specially for Hark by Frank Tucson. We had lots of help from our production elves, the Joseph A. O'Hare Media Fellows, Cristobal Spielman, Jill Rice, and Christopher Parker. Parts of this episode were recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York. Our studio manager is Kevin Jackson. Sebastian Gomes is our executive producer and big-time champion of this podcast. We also want to thank Christopher Walker, Matthew Pierce, Daniel G. Stalker, Smoking Bishop, Sasha Samara, Juan Carlos Quintero, Red Mountain Music, Heather Dale, and the Ignatian Scola for providing the music on this episode. And to Barbara Rowe, who allowed us to play music from the collection of her late husband, Brian Rowe. From America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn, wishing you a very Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>